Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Cecile Fobb. Cecile is Senior Research Fellow in Politics at All Souls College, Oxford. She's also Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Oxford. Her research is focused on central normative questions about justice, cosmopolitanism, and war. Her new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. Its title is Spying Through a Glass Darkly, The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. Now, on its face, spying and counterintelligence activities seem morally suspect. They tend to involve sneaking, deceiving, and manipulating, as well as various forms of betrayal, treachery, and disloyalty. But intelligence and counterintelligence operations are mainstays of any modern state. Should we conclude that these activities are wrong, but nonetheless necessary, given the realities of modern politics? Now, in Spying Through a Glass Darkly, Cecile Fobb develops an intricate account of the morality of spying and counterintelligence activities. She argues that routine espionage activities are morally justified and even sometimes obligatory as a means to thwart violations of fundamental rights. However, she also argues that familiar forms of mass surveillance are unjustified. Now, as usual, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here, but let's begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Cecile. How are you? Hi, Bob. I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? 
Oh, I'm doing fine today. Um, it's really nice to talk to you. Um, but uh, we usually begin these interviews with uh, the author of a fabulous new book, uh, speaking a little bit about herself. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, of course. First of all, let me thank you for having me on the uh, on the program. I've looked forward to this, you know, very much. So, about myself, well, um, I'm a moral and political philosopher. Currently, as you said, at the University of Oxford, um, as I'm sure uh, your listeners will have spotted by now and may know already I'm French, but I've lived in the United Kingdom for uh, 30 years, actually, 30 years in this year. So I first came over to do a master's degree at the University of York. Then I moved to Oxford to do my doctorate under the supervision of Jerry Cohen. And then I've moved around the UK, you know, quite a bit until I came back to Oxford about 12 years ago. You know, now. Um, as you said, I've worked a lot on series of justice, cosmopolitanism, the ethics of war. I've also had um, a long-standing interest in the, the rights that we have of our own body, and I'm now moving into slightly different you know, areas. I'm getting very interested in some of the ethical issues that arise from the protection of cultural heritage. Um, on a less serious note, the one that is entirely relevant to what we are going to talk about this afternoon, I'm a massive fan of crime and spy fiction, which is one of the reasons why I ended up writing a book uh, about the ethics of, uh, of espionage. I mean, the opportunity to to read Lecarre's novels and watch the Americans or um, the Bureau for work was just too good to pass up, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always, I, I find, I've been doing this uh, podcast for over a decade. It's always interesting to hear th that kind of thing from an author, like what the, what the, what the background is to the interest in the, uh, the topic that the book was about. Um, well, that, that's fabulous. So um, uh, let's talk about the book. How's that? That's perfect. Excellent. <laughs> <Fabulous>. <laughs> so um, I, I, I suspect you get this kind of uh, sort of background question a lot. So, you know, like many political philosophers, I, I myself, you know, uh, opened your book with a vague sense that some of the canonical um, political theorists, and I was thinking mainly of a sort of throwaway line in a paragraph or two in Hobbes on the citizen. Um, uh, but, you know, sometimes you get a, um, in the, in classical political philosophy, um, you get a, a sentence or two about spies <laughs> and what to do about them and whether they're needed and, you know, how to reward them and how to keep them loyal and all the rest. Um, but it wasn't until I got into the book that I realized um, how odd it is that the topic isn't more central, um, especially in contemporary political philosophy. Now, you know, as you know, the, in the book, there is a literature about surveillance and technologies that uh, rob us of our privacy, allegedly. Um, but, you know, the, the, the practices of spying, uh, again, I, I suspect you're not alone in being a fan of spy novels and spy films. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of a puzzle that it's not more central to uh, what political philosophers are doing. So let's begin um, then maybe with, uh, if you have thoughts about why <laughs> it might not be so central. But then I want to move very quickly uh, into your opening analysis of these sort of three 
types of approaches that are more or less explicit, sometimes only implicit in contemporary political philosophy um, about spying, the dirty hands, contractarian and just war accounts. Uh, so can you give us that background and then and then get us up and running? Excellent. So on the background, I mean, I have puzzled over why there is so little about espionage in contemporary political philosophy for years. Um, I mean, particularly in the last 20 years, which has witnessed an extraordinary revival in just war, you know, theory. And as we all know, you know, espionage is a handmaiden of war. So I simply do not understand why, you know, philosophers of war haven't really thought seriously about espionage. Um, I suppose, you know, a, a partial and somewhat facetious, you know, answer to that question is that um, in, in popular culture, we perhaps tend to reduce espionage to James Bond. And it doesn't seem very serious, <laughs> you know, to write scholarly articles about the ethics of James Bond. Um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure whether there is a less facetious, you know, answer to the puzzle. Um, in any event, um, I, I realized, having worked and written on the ethics of war for a long time, that I, I really had to scratch that philosophical intellectual hitch, um, you know, about espionage, hence, um, hence the book. Um, now, as, as you say, um, there are broadly three contemporary approaches, which for the reasons I've just given are not very well developed, um, the dirty hands approach, contractarianism, and uh, just war theory. Um, although you know, they are not satisfactory, I want to stress that um, all three of them tell us something really important about the ethics of espionage. So they are worth investigating, you know, in their own right. So if we start you know, with a dirty hands approach, um, it might be helpful first to remind ourselves of what is a classic dirty hands scenario. So a dirty hands scenario is one in which an official, for example, you know, the president um, of the United States or you know, the British Prime Minister, is presented quite official with a choice between two courses of action, both of which are morally unpalatable. Um, and he chooses one of those courses of action. So in the classic case, for example, torturing a prisoner in order to find out where the dirty bomb you know, is located. And in so doing, he dirties his hands. Um, and the reason he does that um, is that breaching in this particular case, the moral prohibition on torture is not as bad as allowing hundreds of people to die you know, at the hand of terrorists. And so in the context of espionage, you know, we see or argue that intelligence officers dirty their hands to the extent that as intelligence officers, they must choose between, for example, not lying, not betraying, not blackmailing at the cost of being left in the dark, but on the other hand, committing those acts as a means to procure and protect sensitive information about national security and they choose to do the latter. So on the dirty hands view, they dirty their hands and they do so justifiably, you know, for the sake of protecting lives, you know, by means of protecting information about national inner security. Now, you know, on the face of it, it seems to be a very plausible characterization, you know, of what happens. And in that sense, um, the dirty hands approach 
is insightful because it tells us that when we think about espionage from a normative point of view, we have to find a justification for tactics, courses of action, which are morally unpalatable. I mean, the problem with the dirty hands approach, however, is that it does not allow for the possibility that the intelligence officer might in fact be acting entirely cleanly. So it seems to me that the presumption of the wrongfulness of, for example, deceiving or manipulating others can be lifted or overridden. And if that is the case, then the intelligence officer, to repeat, does not dirty his or her hands. And it seems to me that we have to be attuned to that possibility. So that is why I don't find the dirty hands approach entirely satisfactory. Does, Does that make sense so far? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Good. And so the second approach that I discussed in the book is um, what I call, uh, in line with others, contractarian in a political morality. Now, it's a little bit complicated to explain because um, contractarian political morality admits of many different you know, variants. But uh, the, central, yes. the, the central claim you know, is, is this. Um, at the bar of contractarian political morality, the right thing to do is defined by appeal to norms which rational and moral agents either consent to as a matter of fact or would consent to if they were aware of those facts or hypothetically, you know, consent to. So to give you an example, on Hobbes's view of contractarian morality, the consent at issue is the consent of moral agents who realize that it is in their interest to entrust the state with the task of protecting them from internal and external threats. On Locke's view, the consent at issue is the consent of agents who realize that the only way to ensure that all are treated equally is to have each consent to the authority of the sovereign. Now, there is a tradition um, within just war theory which constructs the morality of war along contractarian line and there is also a little bit you know, of a tradition in the ethics of espionage which does the same. So, for example, if we go back to Hobbes's view, the thought here is this. It is in the interest of intelligence professionals and the masters whom they serve to abide by certain norms of conduct when they carry out espionage activities. They either, as a matter of fact, do consent or ought to consent to those norms, and they common agreement on those norms is what gives us you know, a moral framework for espionage you know, activities. Um, and you know, a relevantly similar argument can be made about espionage on Lockean grounds. Um, now, again, um, there is something interesting about contractarian political morality you know, in the context of espionage, it is the kind of framework which, as far as I can tell, is the most often deployed by uh, intelligence officers who have thought and reflected on the ethics of their profession. So another way to put the point is that, as far as I can make out, um, 
the professional ethics you know, of espionage is very much articulated along contractarian lines. And although I do not myself subscribe into contractarian political morality, and I'll explain why in a, in a second, it seems to me that in this field, as you know, in the realm more widely of war ethics, or indeed police ethics, which is you know, similar, it's important to be aware of the ways in which the professionals you know, think, um, if only because one has a better chance of being listened to you know, by them if one shows that one is aware you know, of the philosophical uh, assumptions. You know, on the basis of which you know they conduct you know their work. Um, th- that said, as I noted a moment ago, and I'm not you know a, a proponent you know of um, contractarian political morality. You know, for a number of reasons. I mean, let me you know highlight two really. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean to be honest, you know, the fact that some political communities and intelligence professionals have developed you know shared understandings of what count as acceptable and unacceptable espionage practices, and the fact that they consent to those understandings, it seems to me does very little to show that those practices in fact are morally acceptable. So for example, you know, in a given political context, you know, the practice of using honey traps to blackmail enemy agents into betraying their country might be regarded as wholly acceptable by an intelligence service, yet condemned you know, by another. So, you know, to illustrate this particular example more, you know, precisely, um, in the course of writing the book, I mean, I, I read, you know, vast quantities of empirical materials, and in particular, the uh, autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who was one of the highest ranking intelligence officers of um, uh, the former Democratic Republic of Germany. And it's absolutely clear in the autobiography that he sees nothing problematic to the use of honey traps, um, and that he's not alone in endorsing the practice in his intelligence communities. Uh, At the same time, I have had former officers of British intelligence agencies swear to me that it is absolutely not part of shared understandings within the British intelligence communities, you know, to use honey traps. So, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, contractual morality, we need to have a better grounding for its claim that there is, you know, consent um, on some of the norms, you know, at issue. Um, my second main objection, in a way, you know, is is related, you know, to this. Um, you know, very quickly, um, the contractarians will have to accept that there are norms of conduct which are valid, irrespective of whether or not intelligence professionals and the citizens on whose behalf they act agree to those norms or not. Um, And as soon as they make that concession, it seems to me that the game is up. Um, Because then one one has to wonder whether, you know, the notion of the contract, and much more deeply, appeals to consent on which contract and theory rests, does any work at all to get us to understand what it is that intelligence professionals are permitted or obliged, you know, to do. And that's a, that's a more, I mean, there's a, um, you know, that's just a more general objection to whatever you want to be a contractarian about, right? 
that's a good one. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's a good one. I mean, I have long-standing disagreements um, about this, you know, with, uh, you know, with some of my, um, you know, colleagues, you know, who have developed v- very sophisticated, you know, accounts of contractarian political morality as applied, you know, to war. But I do stand, you know, by, you know, the concerns I have just, um, you know, articulated. Um, um, the third approach is uh, the, the just war, you know, theory, you know, approach. Um, that's a, a very, very long, you know, standing, you know, philosophical framework, which, you know, in the West really started being developed by theologians, you know, in the early, in the Middle Ages. Um, I, I want, if I may, to spend a little bit of time on this, um, you know, in case some of your readers are not, you know, familiar, you know, with just war you know, theory. So in the West, um, you know, the, the central puzzle, if you are a Christian, um, is is this. Um, given Christ's injunction against harming, you know, other people, how can one develop an account of self-defense? Right. Um, it is all very well, you know, to say that if I'm hit, you know, on one cheek, I ought to turn the other cheek. Nevertheless, very, very, very few people, and indeed very few Christians, are absolute, you know, pacifists. So, in the context of war, you know, the challenge is to provide a justification for the permissibility of killing, you know, within uh, a Christian, you know, framework. And that challenge has been taken up, you know, over the course of several centuries. Um, the answer to that challenge consists in uh, arguing that uh, war is just, all things considered, only if it meets a number of conditions. It has to have a just cause. It has to be waged by the right authority. Um, it has to be a proportionate response to the wrongdoing to which one has been subjected. And once the war has started, there are certain rules about what can or cannot be done. So you know, the innocent who are not causally, causally or morally responsible for the war are not legitimate targets. Soldiers are you know, legitimate targets. There is a proportionality condition. You know, Once the war has started, the war must have a reasonable chance of success and it must be the option of last resort. Now, I wanted to spend a bit of time on this because... Um, you know, in the light of what I said at the very beginning of the conversation, that espionage is a handmaiden of war, um, at first sight, when I started thinking about espionage, I thought, well, it's easy. You know, you just apply, you know, the just war theory framework. And then you have straightforwardly, you know, an account of the permissibility of espionage. And you have it not just within war, but outside of war, you know, as well. So straightforwardly, you could argue that an espionage operation is justified if it has a just cause, if it is proportionate, if it abides by certain norms as to who may be targeted or not, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so, again, um, you know, the just war theory framework is attractive. Um, it tells us something about how to go about justifying espionage. And the thing that it tells us is that if we have any hope to justify espionage, we have to accept that 
um, we need to provide an account of defensive harming, you know, harming in self-defense or harming in, in defense of others. The problem, however, is that just what theory, as I've said, is concerned with justifying killing or at any rate, very serious injury, you know, to limbs and property as well as threats to life but at the risk of pointing at the obvious to spy and to protect one's secrets is not at all the same as to kill so an account of the ethics of espionage must be very sensitive to this important difference you know between those um, domains of activity Right. And I guess that in the espionage case, it would be, um, since it's so central to just war theory, that there be identifiable categories like aggressor. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Who started it? Who started in espionage, it? it doesn't seem like that's... Um, doesn't seem like that applies in espionage. Who started spying doesn't seem like the right kind of moral... doesn't seem like the same kind of relevant question as it does yeah, in the war that, case, that's, right? That, that's good. So I think, I think you're right. Um, so yeah, so this, this is interesting. So um, the, the contrast here, picking up on what you've just said, you know, could be framed as follows. Well, look, you know, when we start talking about the morality of war, are we not presupposing that there is a clear contrast between a state of war and a state of peace? Um, and, you know, the, the, the norms regulating war are norms for exiting a state of peace and entering a state of war. And by contrast, it seems that, um, you know, given that espionage goes on all the time, um, even among allies, even, it should be even added. amongst yeah. allies. You, it seems that the framework um, of the just war is not entirely opposite. Now, I'm very sympathetic, you know, to this. However, um, one of the, uh, the really serious philosophical and practical and legal, you know, challenges for uh, philosophers and philosophers of war and lawyers who have to think about war is that in many more conflicts than used to be the case, certainly in the modern and contemporary era, the line between war and peace is really not as hard and fast, you know, as we might, um, as we might think. Um, and so if that's true, um, then, you know, some of the worries that articulate in the book about the ethics of espionage, worries which flow precisely from the fact that espionage is an ongoing state of affairs, those worries will also arise for those military conflicts which seem to be, by dint of how protected they are, uh, ongoing in a state of affairs as well. Um, right. Fabulous. Um, so good. So we've got three... Um, three accounts, some of them are merely implicit in literature, some are more explicit. They reveal something important. The argument is that they are deficient. So your positive account then um, begins with an insight. Um, uh, I think this is a, a really sound methodological thought right? <laughs> that um, for if we're looking at, if we're trying to figure out the morality of espionage, we need to begin with an examination of secrecy because <laughs> that's what espionage is always about. Um, and um, more specifically, you argue that um, uh, members of political communities, maybe political communities themselves in some sense, um, have a right that certain kinds of information 
uh, information about themselves be kept secret. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's a pro tanto, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that right to secrecy? Because that's that seems to me the hinge on which uh, your account sort of turns. Yeah, good. So before I do that, um, I think I need to um, to do a bit more work, um, you know, to explain why I start with secrecy, and and I need to do a bit more work there because. Um, I can imagine that, you know, some of your listeners might say, well, hold on. I mean, a lot of the information which intelligence agencies gather is publicly available you know, information. So, you know, to use as an example, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on the 24th of February, you know, 2022. Well, you know, Western intelligence agencies had known for months that Russia was gathering troops alongside the border. So there was nothing secret about that. It would be odd, however, you know, to describe the activities of those intelligence agencies in the months leading up to the invasion as not being espionage or intelligence, you know, activities. Um, I mean, in a similar vein, you know, some of the information which um, intelligence agencies gather is portrayed as secret by the other side. But in fact, it's not. I mean, the other side really wants us to have it, um, for example, in order you know, to, to deceive us. But if the other side really wants us to have it, it's not true that intelligence agencies acting for us are in the business of getting information that the other side doesn't want us you know, to have. So... You know, the relationship between, you know, espionage and secrecy is a little bit more complex, you know, it seems to me, than we might be tempted to think, you know, at first sight. Uh, nevertheless, I do think that uh, that relationship exists. Um, so it's true that um, a lot of the information that is gathered by intelligence agencies is open source, you know, information. It's available by you know, satellite, you know, observation, you know, and so on and so forth. That, of course, is entirely compatible with the fact that the other side would much rather that we not have it. Um, I mean, uh, I can imagine that the scenario in which Russia, for example, might have wanted, you know, to hide, you know, the extent, you know, of the military strength that um, it was willing and seemed to us to be able, you know, at the time, you know, back in February, you know, to, uh, you know, to deploy. Um, moreover. Um, what that publicly available information tells us about the other side might not be something that the other side wants us to know. Um, and finally, when the other side does want us to have that information, when it does so in order to deceive us, um, well, what we are in the business of really trying to find out is the real information that they do not want us you know, to have. So secrecy really you know, is absolutely central and yet it hasn't really been looked at um, you know by the scholarship on espionage I mean it's been looked at in a lot of other contexts which are germane but not specifically you know in the service of scrutinizing whether espionage is morally permissible so what I want to argue is that um, citizens of a political community have a presumptive right that some important information about themselves qua citizens so relating to national security political agency to their economy as well as in some cases to their private lives be treated as secret by the other side in the context of foreign policy so that's how the argument 
goes. Right. And um, so let me ask about the, the next, the next step then. Um, Cause I do want to hear about the, uh, um, the basis for that, right? I mean, there is, you've got these sort of two, um, two reasons why uh, uh, we might have this right. But once you, est- the, the, the argument, the way the argument works is that once you establish that members of the political community have that right, that certain information be kept secret, that's the basis for the defense of espionage as not merely permissible. And here's the part that I, th- I thought was was really uh, intriguing and and very very interesting about the book because ultimately you are, ultimately you argue that um, certain espionage activities are not only permissible they are also obligatory. Yes. So can you fill in some of those gaps? Well, first it might be helpful um, if I say a little bit more, um, if that's okay with you, uh, about justifications for the right to secrecy, uh, to political secrecy. So, I mean, there are essentially two. Um, uh, well, I, I, I deploy four in the book, but the main ones um, are national security and democratic agency. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time you know, national security because it seems to me fairly obvious um, that there is a presumptive right, um, you know, held, for example, by, you know, American citizens. In fact, I should say American residents or British residents or French, you know, residents that, um, you know, the codes um, giving access to uh, weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons, not be disclosed, you know, to all and sundry. Um I mean, the political agency, you know, argument might not be as obvious as the national security, you know, argument. But I, I do think it's a, it's a powerful interest that we have in political agency, which is protected by the right to um, uh, to secrecy. So secrecy quite often, you know, protects the integrity of democratic procedures and um, thereby of democratic agency. Um, it also, secrecy, protects um, individual citizens' ability to bring the political plans to completion. So let me give you an example to illustrate both the procedural point and the substantive, you know, point. So procedurally, um, in a democratic community, we all have an interest in political participation and in there being a formal connection between our individual preferences and political decisions. We all have an interest, in other words, in voting, you know, in the context of national, you know, elections in particular. And so suppose that my interest in casting a vote and in that vote being appropriately counted um, is important to be protected enough to be protected by a right to vote. But also, let's imagine a right to vote electronically if I'm not able to go to the polling station. Well, that interest is important enough to be protected by a right that the cybersecurity measures taken by my government to ensure the integrity of the online voting system not be disclosed to all and sundry. Um, so that's a procedural you know, point. But also, you know, substantively, um, and particularly in the context of um, foreign relations, secrecy can act as a protective cloak, you know, of a... Uh, courses of action which, if they were made fully public at the outset, would simply not happen. So, for example, the Oslo peace process, you know, which led to mutual recognition by Israel and the PLO, 
1993 did start as a back-channel process of negotiations under the auspices of the Norwegian authorities. Um, so the role of back-channels is to allow officials from political communities in conflict to negotiate with one another, you know, without fear, um, more, more immediately without coming to harm. Um, so, you know, these are different ways in which political secrecy protects important you know, political interests. So once we've established that, I mean, assuming that the argument stands up you know, to scrutiny, well, then we have to um, ascertain whether and when and why espionage, which, again, consists in seeking to procure the secrets as well as defend our own, is morally permissible indeed mandatory. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Fabulous. Um, and so the book, once you make that, um, once you make that argumentative move that, you know, espionage activities, including the counterintelligence activities are about protecting secrets and particularly um, protecting secrets or acquiring information that could help to thwart basic rights uh, violations. And so if there's a real strong moral reason <laughs> to protect secrets and to thwart those violations, and if espionage is an indispensable tool for doing those things, it looks like, <laughs> it looks like we've got the basis of a, uh, of a pretty robust uh, moral defense, not only of the permissibility, but um, in, under certain conditions of the obligatoriness uh, of espionage. Um, but I guess the devil's in the details, right? That's right. That's right. So, so, so you've given a, a wonderfully clear summary, you know, of the uh, you know, of the basic position. Um, so let me now try, you know, to to defend the basic position, um, you know, in in a bit more detail. So let's start, you know, with a claim that um, you know, espionage, uh, for the sake of um, protecting fundamental moral rights, is morally permissible. So in my work in general, I like to proceed by way of analogies. Now, it, it's a form of reasoning which is a bit risky because you know, analogies are not always you know, illuminating and they don't always take the place of you know, more fully developed you know, arguments. Sometimes, however, they are you know, illuminating. And so the analogy that I always come back to here you know, is this. You know, if, if someone let's call him blogs, you know, tries to kill me without justification whatsoever. Well, I am morally justified, I'm assuming for the sake of argument, in killing blogs, you know, in self-defense. Now, if that claim is true, 
then surely I am morally justified in trying to work out how many guns Bloggs has at his disposal. I mean, that surely is not privileged information which Bloggs is entitled to prevent me from acquiring you know, at the point at which, you know, it's absolutely clear to me that he will attempt to kill me with at least some, you know, of those guns. Um, and the point carries over, it seems to me, by analogy to espionage in the context of war. It is not restricted, you know, to war. So as I argue, you know, in um, in the book, you know, if we imagine a country which I call blue and which embarks on a policy of um, undermining foreign leaders without warrant, uh, for example, Greens leaders, on the grounds that Green leaders refuse to align themselves to Blue's national interests. And if we imagine that um, Blue's activities would be seriously harmful you know, to Green's populations, well, insofar as Blue acts unjustly, Green may justifiably appropriate of information which Blue lacks a right to keep secret about Blue's designs, information which Green needs in order to tailor its particular response. So, you know, the, the case for permissible espionage, you know, uh, again, you know, with a view solely to uh, protect, you know, fundamental moral rights, more precisely to thwart violations of those rights, um, the claim that espionage to that end is permissible seems fairly straightforward, you know, to me. Yeah. And and but once it's once the argument says that it's it's permissible in the straightforward way, and I think that you're you're right about that. Then it looks like it's just a short step to it being mandatory in certain kinds. Yes, ways, right. Yes, yes, it is. Um, it is. Um, the, the, it is. Um, so what I find interesting is that. Um, uh, the point has been made before, you know, uh, the point that espionage is morally mandatory, and it's been made very forcefully by, you know, Sun Tzu, um, whose um, magisterial, you know, treatise, The Art of War, ends with a chapter on espionage, you know, on the one hand, uh, but also by Thomas Hobbes. Um, my defense of the duty to spy is very different, you know, from Sun uh, uh, you know, and uh, and Hobbes's. So for Hobbes, you know, the prince is under a duty to spy because that's his job, you know, as a sovereign. Um, it's in his interest, you know, to do so. He will not survive, you know, as a sovereign under the terms of the contract um, he has passed with citizens unless he protects, you know, the latter. And his duty to gather the information he needs in order to protect citizens, you know, is grounded, you know, in that prior, you know, prudential duty. Um, for Sun Tzu, um, the sovereign is also under a duty to spy, but very interestingly, in my view, the, the duty is owed to the sovereign's soldiers and citizens. So the sovereign owes it to his soldiers and citizens to shorten the war, you know, as much as possible. And in order to shorten the war, and indeed also in order to minimize the damage that the war does to them, um, the sovereign has to, and it's a very strong has to, it's a very strong must, he has to procure the information that he needs. And if spying is the way to do it, well then so be it. In fact, Sun Tzu goes as far as to say in um, in a passage that um, stands out, you know, in the book it seems to me, um, insofar as it has a hint of pesos that you don't find elsewhere you know, in the treaty, Sun Tzu says, the prince who does not spy, 
for the sake of his soldiers um, and subjects is, and here I quote, devoid of humanity. It's a very strong, it's a very strong statement. Um, I don't disagree, you know, with Sun Tzu. Um, I, I disagree with Hobbes, you know, for reasons articulated earlier when we discussed contractarian morality. You know, Hobbesian morality is contractarian. Um, I don't subscribe, you know, to contractarian morality. Um, Sun Tzu is not a contractarian. And I say this at the risk of, you know, being anachronistic. But nevertheless, um, you know, to reiterate, this is important. You know, Sun Tzu grounds, you know, the duty to spy, you know, into what the sovereign owes morally at the bar of humanity to his subjects and soldiers. My defence um, is somewhat different. Um, so I argue that. Um, Although it is true that Green is under a duty to spy, you know, for the sake of its soldiers and citizens, um, the duty is not just a duty to ensure that the war is shorter, you know, than it could be, um, and therefore less harmful to them. Um, it is also rooted, it seems to me, in a duty which um, a leadership has to its soldiers, citizens and officials not to expose them to the risk of committing a serious moral wrong. Um, when we go to war, but the point also applies when we think, for example, about the imposition of economic sanctions or other measures short of war, you know, we impose harms on a wide range of people, not all of whom are our fellow citizens. Um, and there is always a risk that those harms will be wrongful, you know, harms. So there is always a risk, for example, that the military leadership will order, you know, a battalion or, you know, uh, drone pilots to attack targets which, in fact, are not, you know, legitimate targets. And it seems to me to be a serious dereliction of duty if that military leadership fails to procure information that would tell them that the target is not a legitimate target. It's a dereliction of duty not merely vis-à-vis -vis the direct victims, you know, of the targeting, but vis-à-vis -vis those soldiers, you know, themselves. You know, and uh, the less highly ranked, you know, officials as well. So the, the duties owed, um, you know, by Green in my recurrent example, you know, to Green citizens and soldiers, um, as grounded with Sun Tzu in a duty to spare them from the suffering of war or harmful foreign policy decisions. It is grounded um, in a duty to spare them from the risks of wrongful moral agency. And that risk is overlooked, you know, in the literature. But it is also a duty which Green owes to blues innocent civilians, um, which otherwise, you know, um, who otherwise would be subject to wrongful harming. That's fabulous. So th 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 I take that to be uh, sort of the, the, the core argument. And then the rest of the book... Um, is devoted to particular tactics or forms or sites uh, of espionage. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I'll just mention to the readers that this is a, a, a really, you know, 
I don't know if comprehensive is the right word, but you know, there's a lot going on in the book when it comes to the various kinds of tactics. Um, and so um, we're just going to pick and choose here. Uh, so there's a chapter on, ec- uh, on um, economic espionage I'm going to set aside uh, for the sake of time, although it's, it was very intriguing. Um, I want to ask about your analysis of deception and then also your analysis of treason. So you argue that there are some forms of deception that are practiced in the course of espionage activities that are defensible, even when they harm those who aren't acting wrongfully. Um, so can you, uh, which again, I, I, I was, it was an eye-opening kind of argument for me. Um, so uh, can you run us through the deception argument? And then I want to follow up with the question about treason, which has a similar kind of structure. That's right. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, espionage, um, you know, some definitions, um, in fact, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, you know, definition is uh, inherently, you know, de- deceitful. Um, and in fact, um, Kant, who is one of the very few moral and political philosophers in the history of political thought, apart from Hobbes, um, you know, to have talked about espionage, loathes you know, espionage. Uh, he, he dubs it that, I quote, infernal art. Note the contrast, you know, with uh, Sun Tzu, we have two very different kinds of pesos, you know, here. And, and he loses um, espionage, that infernal art, precisely because, you know, to practice espionage is to uh, to deceive. Um, now, there is a, a very uh, well-developed, really nice, really rich, you know, literature in moral philosophy um, about Kant's arguments on lying in particular, but more generally, the ethics of, uh, of deception. And in the book, I uh, avail myself you know, of that literature in order to, as you said, um, argue that um, deception in the service of espionage and counterintelligence uh, is sometimes morally permissible. In fact, I even argue that it is sometimes you know, morally mandatory. Um, now, I want to make um, a broader methodological point, um, which I was hoping to make at some point, but now I think is a very good time, you know, to do it. Um, so, um, in the work that I've, I've done, um, particularly uh, the work that I did a long time ago on the rights that we have of our own body, more recently, uh, the work that I've done on the ethics of war and the ethics of espionage, um, I... I conduct, you know, what we in the discipline would call, you know, applied ethics. Um, but the applied ethics I try to do um, does not m- simply consist in, you know, taking a framework, so say Kantian arguments, you know, about lying, and simply applying that framework to the applied issue at hand here espionage what i try to do is show how by applying that framework to a specific concrete practical issue we learn things about that framework you know in return so it's a it's a back and forth you know move you know, if if you will, you know, between you know the foundational and uh, the more practical, and I was very aware um, of proceeding, you know, in that way, you know, in the chapter on deception, because what I discovered uh, when I started writing the chapter 
is that, um, well, of course, you know, we have Kant's famous example of the murderer at the door. So the murderer turns up on my doorstep, asks me uh, to tell him the whereabouts of his intended victim. Am I morally allowed to lie? Kant says I'm not. Uh, most people say I am. Fine. But then when I started thinking about different kinds of deception and different kinds of intelligence, you know, operation uh, strategies, um, I discovered that there are many variations on Kant's initial, you know, example of the murderer at the door, which in turn tell us something about the ethics of deception that we might not have been aware of you know, before. So my hope um, is that what I say about deception in the book, the deception inherent in espionage and counterintelligence operations, might be helpful when we think about deception in other contexts, you know, as well. So that's the general, you know, methodologic point I wanted to make. Um, now, I argue, and I'm not alone in this, um, that um, uh, intelligence professionals, uh, their leaders, and the citizens on whose behalf they act, who are relevantly similar to the mother at the door, have forfeited you know, their claim not to be deceived. Um, depending on the nature of their wrongdoing, they have forfeited their claim not to be lied to. They have forfeited their claim not to be misled. You know, by implicator, they have forfeited their claim um, uh, not to have information concealed, you know, from them. These are the easy cases. These are the people who are relevantly similar um, uh, to the murderer at the door. Now, your question was more probing, more penetrating. <laughs> it said, well, you know, what about the innocent? You know. What about what about those who are embroiled, you know, in the deception operation, but who have nothing to do with the war, with the wrongful, you know, foreign policy conducted by the regime? Now, this is, uh, you know, one point at which we learn a lot, you know, from the ethics of war. Um, in that body of literature, there is a well-developed set of arguments, which. Um, seeks to show that under certain conditions, um, one may harm the innocent, provided the harm is a, a foreseen, the unintentional side effect you know, of one's actions. And so here I use that body of thought um, to show that um, Although some innocent people will be harmed by deception operations, so long as the harm is a collateral damage, if you will, you know, of um, uh, you know the harm that is done to legitimate targets, then subject to, in particular, constraints of proportionality, uh, the operation of deception is morally justified. Wonderful. Um, so we're we're you've been very generous with your time, um, and I want to, and we're, we're we're running short here. But there are two issues that I, I wanted to uh, invite you to um, uh, to speak to that come up in the book. Um, one is the treason chapter, and um, uh, the the idea again is that in some cases, you know, that that there is a mortal there is a moral category in your view of mandatory treason. Um, but I wanted also to make sure uh, that we, we we get a chance to talk to the, about the last chapter of the book, 
which is about mass surveillance. Um, so I don't know if, if, I'm, if, if it's too much of a task to ask you to sort of, uh, uh, in the time uh, that we have, to sort of say a little bit about treason, but then I want to um, uh, uh, hear more about okay. the mass surveillance argument. Okay. Is that no, okay? That's pretty fine. So, so um, I'll, I'll be quick on treason, though. I'm very glad that you ask about this because, um, you know, much of espionage relies on someone from the other side being willing to commit what her side would regard as treason, to commit for our sake what her side would regard as treason and would punish her for it. Indeed, what we would regard as treason if it is done against us, you know, by one of us. Um, so treason really is at the heart, you know, of espionage, which is why I wanted to, um, you know, to write about it. Um, it is you know, regarded as a heinous, you know, crime, um, one of the most serious breaches of loyalty in the political domain, you know, that uh, there is. Uh, it also goes hand in hand with personal betrayal, you know, the betrayal of one's friends, one's colleagues, you know, one's spouses, one's children. Um, it's a very highly costly thing to do, you know, for the traitor, um, though I do believe that it is sometimes, at any rate, morally permissible. So, very briefly, you know, to, to, to betray um, is to act against the ties of loyalty which bind us to others, in this particular context, to our fellow citizens. I argue in the book, however, that our loyalty to our fellow citizens or fellow intelligence officers um, cannot trump the protection of fundamental moral rights, you know, the latter has precedence of, uh, you know, the former. Um, we would readily make that claim um, if we thought about the ties of loyalty that bind members of a crime family, you know, together. Um, again, biological reasoning, uh, we should, you know, be willing to face up, um, you know, to the possibility that treason is morally permissible for the reason just given. As I also argue in the book, um, I do believe that um, there are circumstances in which um, it is um, a duty of good Samaritanism, that we are under a duty to do our share to protect victims of violations of fundamental you know, moral rights. And sometimes you know, the way in which we discharge that duty is by passing on you know, to the other side information that that side needs um, in order to protect those people. Um, we are also under a reparative duty um, when one is embedded in one state's unjust inner structures to correct for one's complicity in the moral violations that that regime you know, commits. And again, one way to discharge that reparative duty can sometimes take the form of informational treason. So that's the core of my argument in that chapter. Very good. Very good. Um, so let's move on to the surveillance, um, which you find objectionable. Um, uh, but the reason, I, I, again, the reason I thought, the, the central reason, there are lots of reasons, but the reason I thought was very interesting, um, mass surveillance um, is uh, objectionable um, when it is objectionable um, because it entrenches unfair inequalities. Yeah. Good. Can you tell us a bit about that to, to wrap up? Yes. So, so um, most people, a lot of people, when they think about um, what might be objectionable about mass surveillance, will immediately think, oh, well, it's a violation of privacy. 
um, as implied by the word, you know, surveil. Um, and I agree that it sometimes is a violation of privacy, though not always. And I want to show that um, even when it is not, you know, a violation of privacy, we have good reasons to be very deeply concerned about it uh, on grounds of uh, unfair, you know, inequalities. And the argument here goes something like this: uh, practices of mass surveillance currently rely on algorithmic, you know, processes. And there are very good reasons to believe that those algorithmic processes in turn are parasitic on existing unfair inequalities. So as a result, you know, decisions which are made on the basis of those processes uh, worsen uh, and trench, you know, those, uh, those inequalities. Um, so the argument, you know, stands up uh, if we can show uh, why and how, you know, algorithmic uh, processes are parasitic on existing you know, inequalities. Um, there is a, a mushrooming, as it were, literature, you know, on this, um, you know, at the moment, uh, which um, which I use, you know, in the book. Um, the general claim really is this: that you know, algorithms are only as good as the data which they process um, is, and um, the data on which they are trained, you know, as well. And so, you know, when the data is incomplete, corrupted. Um, false errors can lead to mistaken descriptions of, um, of responsibility. And that data is even more likely to be incomplete, corrupted, um, uh, false when it tracks you know, existing, um, existing inequalities. Um, so, you know, um, let, me give you, let me give you an example. Um, an important issue is that of what algorithms have been trained to identify as a normal pattern and deviations, you know, from that pattern. Um, and of what probabilistic inferences uh, can be drawn, you know, from that information. So one of the most interesting, um, you know, bits of evidence, as it were, you know, which I found, um, it was a... 2017 survey, you know, conducted by the Pew Research Center uh, in the U.S. on patterns of gun ownership. Um, so they correlate with political affiliation, patterns of habitat, uh, gender, and ethnicity. So with that in mind, a white American male who owns several guns, who lives in the rural South, and who identifies as a staunch anti-federal state Republican, will fit very nicely what you may call a normal pattern of gun ownership in that country. A youngish American of Middle Eastern descent who lives in New York and does not record a party political affiliation will not fit. Now, suppose that the algorithm has been trained to identify, not entirely unreasonably, actually, you know, attacks on civilians by young men of Middle Eastern descent as terroristic attacks, whereas attacks by white supremacists are recorded as mass shootings. Well, it's very easy to see why a red flag might be issued if a 30-year-old New Yorker who was born in Morocco suddenly buys guns, has a truck, and posts anti-West pro-ISIS messages on Instagram but not if the messages are posted by a long-term white resident of Colorado who buys a bunch of assault weapons, hires a truck, and posts violent anti-federal and racist messages on Twitter. Now, I would like to hope that, you know, in the light of, um, you know, recent uh, events, not just in the US, but in Europe as well, um, intelligence agencies have uh, done some work, you know, on their algorithms. But nevertheless, the example shows what is problematic, you know, uh, at the moment, you know, about 
practices of mass surveillance, which relies, which relies, sorry, on those algorithmic you know, processes. Well, that's a, 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 a fabulous, I mean, a very illustrative uh, uh, example. Um, so, uh, Cecile, we're, we are we are out of time, but I, I really want to thank you uh, not only f- uh, for joining me uh, for the for the podcast, uh, but just r- but for writing just uh, you know a really fabulous book. You know, it's um, let me say this. Uh, you know, they're all. I like all kinds of philosophy books. You know, philosophy books that try to solve problems in new ways. Philosophy books that are wrong, but in ways that are innovative and interesting. Um, but yours is a, is a is a different kind of um, philosophy book that I like, which is a the kind of book that shows me that there's philosophy where I hadn't noticed it before. Right, right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That, that actually means a lot. Um, so really, you know, thank you very much, you know, for this and for having me. Oh, it's it's really been a pleasure. Um, so, listeners, uh, thank you for joining uh, Cecile and I uh, for our discussion. Um, to remind you, we've been talking about a fabulous new book by uh, Cecile Fobb. It's titled Spying Through a Glass Darkly. The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence, um, and it's just been published with Oxford University Press. Uh, I want to thank you, listener, for uh, tuning in uh, to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.